This is a Momentum Media production. Nerd alert! Property Nerds, <laughs> the home for data-driven property investors, where we uncover Australia's hot and cold markets, latest headlines and trends. Hello, nerds. This is your Property Nerds, and it's Arjun here, Investigate's Head of Research, and I'm joined by... Lee Pollywell, your Director of Health Finance. Well, we've got some exciting news today and actually a different style of episode today that's all about something different that we want to do every six months. And if you all love it, we'll, we'll start doing this every three months. Um, I think what will make us bring it down to three monthly is if the policies or if the things that we see in the environments of housing and finance change rapidly, then we'll bring it down to a three months. But for those who are new to the show each month, Lee and I, we join heads and we nerd out, hence the name Property Nerds. And it's a, I guess, a safe space for anyone that's really wanting to learn more about housing finance, headlines, trends, and go through that. But I guess what we do in this episode is a little bit different where we'll go through the three core areas of what's really happening in the markets, which we as we mentioned is finance, number one. The second is policy. And my policy, I, I mean you know, policies in the space of governments, industries, or finance itself that could structurally shift a few things as lead indicators. And then the last thing is property, just core trends in property for people to hear about, learn, understand, based on some of the data and research we're seeing. So these are three core areas. And we'll instead of doing our typical research or finance reviews or or certain guests on, We'll make it a thing where, you know, every six months we get to break down these three core pillars and just go deep into what we think the flavor will be for the next six months off the back of these three. So it's our first time doing that. And and we look forward to sharing more episodes like this and going through those three core pillars so people can get an understanding of things to expect over the next six months. So without any ado, though, our uh, favorite part is um, finance. Finance. Lee, what's happening on the finance front? Yeah, well, um, since last episode, there has been another cash rate increase, as we should all be aware of. If you're not, then, well, (laughs) you're probably not listening to the news. So essentially, obviously, the cash rate's gone up another 0.5% as of July. That's now been applied as of today for majority of lenders. And um, now the cash rate sits at 1.35%. So I guess that's another increase three in a row now. And obviously, there's a lot of talks from different lenders, bank providers, all that, of predictions of where the cash rate will sit by the end of the year. I think on that cash rate piece as well, you know, one thing I learned just reflecting on what you said there is that there used to be this moment where everyone used to think that 0.25s were the only way rates could go down and go up. And that's not the case at all, right? I mean, it's no, it's it's not this thing, it's not the system where it's meant to go up or down on a 0.25. It's set by the RBA based on um, you know, what they're feeling is required to either move and stimulate the economy or slow down the economy. So this is a perfect example that things can move faster and more frequent and at larger jumps in comparison to that the somewhat you know, myth or rule that people think it's a 0.25 for everything. It's not the case at all. But um, Lee, on that note of uh, the interest rates rising up and the bank's forecast, what are some of the forecasts that the banks out there have been putting? For example, ANZ was saying 3% by the end of the year cash rate. 
I mean, last episode we talked about, you know, 2019 pre-pandemic cash rates were sitting at one and a half percent. And we're talking about how it's currently normalizing. So it's not all doom and gloom, right? But we're now sitting at 1.35% shortly after us just talking about that last month. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's one prediction and that's kind of an indicator of what many others are saying is around that mark by the end of the year. I think that, yeah, the 2.5 to sort of 3 has been what's been thrown around by many of the banks and their forecasts. And then that 2 to 2.5 is where the RBA is at. But I think if there's anything the Australian public is going to really be frustrated with, is the fact that the two groups who are saying them, the banks and RBA, have not been very reliable over the last year or two in what they are going to see or they're going to do. Mm. And the banks from their 30 40% decline forecasts and then the RBA from we won't do anything in 2024 until 2024, these have been absolute letdowns to the general public, not mm. because of yeah. – the outcomes of them, but just more so because of reputable source of information for Australians to follow, trust in, who run and move core parts of our economy, the flowing of money, right? Uh, And they've just gone in the complete opposite direction of what they said. But I think what it does share with me when I see that 2.5 and 3% outcomes, you know, firstly, as lending has been flowing out to people, they have been assessed in the past at rates of between 5.5 to 7%. And so um, the 5.5 on the low end back when assessment rates were that percentage buffer on top of rates, and that's when rates were at the lowest at 0.1 at that time. And then the high end of 7% is back when the assessment rates just used to be a flat 7%. So that's where that 5.5 to 7 comes from. I think as we go up to that 2, 2.5 and above, if it goes to that level as per bank forecast, then obviously those assessment rates end up getting tested in that territory because Mm -hmm. people's rates would, I guess, be near the 5% at that point should it go to that amount. It's not a large number of of people at that 5.5 assessment rate end because that would have been just more recent finance take up in the recent years Mm -hmm. because back when you and I were in our banking days in CBA, seven, seven and a half. So I still think there's a lot of preparation in the household finances to, to be able to cater to that. But a lot of people in recent times who've taken some of those loans out with the hope or thought that interest rates would remain here forever, I think there's a little bit of, you know, just bounce or shock in those households that just need to react to the speed of change that's happening here. Because obviously it's happening much faster than the way down. Because on the way down, it wasn't this quickly. I mean, we've, no. we've been decreasing since 2012. That's not a three months and you're back up to 1.5 kind of thing. So um, That's right. Yeah. That's right. So I guess a couple of things off the back of that cash rate increases. Yes, the banks are applying the full cash rate increases to their variable rates. And number two, yes, if you've got a variable rate on current variable loans already settled, in terms of repayments, the banks are notifying you pretty much a month after that rate has been applied to then increase your repayment as well. So they're automatically doing that from what we're seeing across all the lenders to increase your repayments. And so I guess we did talk about that last time around in terms of you're applying for new lending and how are we assessing that to make sure we're factoring all these changes in? Well, firstly, 
if the cash rate increase has been announced, applying that into our servicing calculations to preempt once that gets applied. Because if you are pre-approved or trying to apply for pre-approval, if you have that approval already in place, the lender is essentially saying, even if you are already pre-approved, but there is a cash rate increase and we've applied that to variable rate, which we know that's happening, we would need to reassess your borrowing capacity again. So essentially making sure we're getting that all factored in at the time of application or throughout pre-approval placing for the client is quite important or preempting that at the initial stages. So so that's something that's happening and making sure that we have to be very mindful of or new, new applications. But in saying that, we spoke about this last time as well as there's cash assessment rate buffers that's being applied well above the interest rate that's being provided to make sure you can afford that with 3% extra assessment buffer applied to the rate you're actually given. Also, we've been scrutinizing living expenses for a long time now as well. And so anytime, you know, for like any application that you're doing, it used to be that, oh, you've, you know, you just kind of say, I, I paid this much in expenses and this is my, what my repayment on the loan is and all that kind of stuff. Well, for a while now, a good year or two at least, everything is on the table, everything's verified and, and everything's factored in very, uh, very well upfront for your application. So there's no like, there's no chance of you, I guess, overcompensating for what your borrowing capacity would be with all those factors involved. I think what that does is it definitely shows how, solid our credit policy in terms of the stringency of the banks and what they've been reviewing and checking right over the last couple of years so that's definitely a core part that that really really shows but when it comes to data i know housing finance data for may ending is out now Mm -hmm. Um, it is a little bit lagged because obviously we've seen the june interest rate increase and july and interest rate increase which were the bigger ones so i think we'll start to see the finance trends in August, yeah, August, September, we'll be able to look back and see those data yeah. points. So what's happening here on the May ending finance data for um, housing finance? Yep. So housing finance for new loan commitments, total housing rose by 1.7% to $32.4 billion. And this is after a revised fall of 2.8% in the previous month of April. And then for owner-occupier housing, that has rose by 2.1% to 21.2 billion. And that was also after a revised fall in April of 1.7%. And then investor housing has rose by 0.9% to 11.2 billion. And again, after a fall of 4.8% in April. So still seeing some huge numbers on the finance front when it comes to May ending. And it does also look like May was a pretty solid month, some rises across the board. Yeah. And that was the first increase month as well. There you go. So earlier month would have been the first interest rate increase, which usually would have been the the big shock month, right? Like people seeing that first one and yet the finance still trajected forward. But I guess the main thing is that finance is also lagged because people don't take out finance that day, right? It, That's it true. Incorporates Could have been a pipeline months. of two, two That's months right. or so. Um, so I think we should still see that kind of cool off a little bit in the months ahead, but not immediately. It will start to cool off a little bit as those interest rates have kind of sucked out some demand from the market. Now, on the note of finance, I know, Lee, we talk about finance trends internally within our businesses. 
Refinancing, what's been happening on that front? Because I know with refinancing, that's somewhat picked up as a bit of a flavor since these rate increases as people are Mm. reviewing what's happening on that front. Um, What are you seeing on the refinance side? Well, if you can recall two years or so ago, obviously lowest rates ever, all those people who fixed in at that point are now coming off their fixed loan loan terms. And, you know, that's one part of it. And so obviously now all these talks with rate increases, they need to reassess their options. They might be coming off to not the ideal variable rate and variable being much lower than fixed these days. They're going through and, and obviously reassessing their lender options. So all in all, as the rate increases or the cash rate increases have been coming through, that's still, I like overall, we've been seeing actually a pickup in lending inquiries. And I do think it has a lot to do with what I've just mentioned, with the lower rates now coming off the fix or just about to. And people are aware that with the cash rates and the variable rates going up, it is bringing down borrowing potentials a little bit less than obviously two, three months ago. So especially your investors who are going to go into the market again and who are interested to take advantage of that, as well as their uplift in equity and their properties, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of inquiries around in terms of obviously wanting to get their finances sorted. Yeah, I think that's a it's a big call out, Lee. And I think um, what I really think that's important to note is there needs to be a level of proactiveness now amongst Australian households where they, you know, do notice that they're going to come off some low rates and it's not going to be as, you know, low as it should be or as it once was actually. And so as a result, being proactive now, there are cashbacks on offer. There is recasting your loan terms, which lowers your repayments as it goes back to 30-year terms. There's access of equity, whether it be for home renovations, growing your portfolio. Mm-hmm. There's so many upsides that come from refinance when it comes Going to that. from principal and interest to interest-only repayments exactly. is another thing. So there's many things involved with that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. On the refinance note, uh, Lee, I know your team has been really specializing in this area for investors with complex portfolios, you know, trusts, business owners, high net worth individuals in the, you know, Sydney region, where can people reach out to you? What's the best contact point for people to get in touch with you regarding all this refinancing, especially as mortgages are turning and changing so often? Ah, The best way would be on our website. So hillsfinance.com.au and there's a request a callback number, pop in your details. One of our team will call you that day. And essentially, yeah, it could just be just reaching out to review your current loan and seeing whether there is a much better option. But definitely the whole talk of what we're talking about of restructuring the finances, re-extending loan terms, you know, changing your repayment type, obviously looking at the interest rate option now that you've come off fixed potentially, what's the lowest variable rate option? It's worthwhile doing. And on that note with interest rates, I guess, just so you are aware, guys, in terms of, you know, investors, like investor rates are much quite higher than owner-oc. If we're talking about where your rate should be sitting at at the moment from a variable rate today, this is July, mid-July, we're talking about mid to high threes, and that's both for P&I and interest only. And, and so if you're talking about, right? yeah, that's for the investors, okay? So really, you should be reviewing your interest rates and your loans if it's a bit lower than that. Uh, sorry, higher than that. <laughs> yeah, no one wants to jack up your rates. Don't jack your rate up. But if it's higher than, if you're in the, you know, fives, fours, you you can get lower than that. Definitely. And um, on that note as well, I I think when it comes back to that property strategy point, sure for those who 
went to fixed rates before and they came out or felt like winners in that low interest rate time. Moving ahead, if your goal is really scaling a portfolio, being that person on fixed rates, it's not so much about that anymore. Like if you're thinking, hey, RBA cash rates will get to three. And if they do get to three, my interest rates, I want to save them now. Maybe those fixed rates look good at five or six or four or five. I'd be cautious about that because when we build scalable property portfolios for clients, a variable rate offers immense flexibility. And to get ahead in property portfolio building, it is a finance game, which means you sticking with a one bank or two banks max is not what's going to get you there. It's about, you know, us collaborating like we do for many clients and Lee and I being able to go, hey, we need to look at these banks for this or another bank for that. And by doing it this way, we're able to then make sure you're getting your portfolio scaled. So that's a big keynote on the refinance side. And it's super important because on that note of refinance, you know, we're seeing some rises. What are the numbers you're seeing, Lee? Yeah, so back to the ABS lending indicators for external refinancing for the month of May, uh, total housing rose by 3.1%, and that was 16.6% higher compared to that same time a year ago. For owner-occupier housing, it rose by 2%, and that was 19.9% higher compared to the same time a year ago. Investor housing rose by 5.7%, and that's 10.2% higher compared to that time a year ago as well. So, you know. Investors are back. They really increased at 5.7%, taking out some some equity equity there. rescheduling debt, you know, all the things we spoke about. So that's all part of growing a portfolio is, you know, one bank has one policy. Why not go to a broker that has access to 40? So Actually, another thing on that note of equity. Such an important piece I just thought of then that we we didn't touch on is the power of accessing equity to just leave it an offset. Yes, yeah. Like that's such a crucial thing. Like, I mean. Having access to your money when you need it. Buffers, right? Buffers, Buffers, renovations, increasing cash flow in properties. To give everyone some context on a more personal note, I can give an exact address for those as well who want to check out what happened and everything like that. So, 33 Elkhorn Street, Bellbird Park. So that's my own investment property. It goes back to 2016, I bought it. But I want to use this as a bit of an example of what people can do to tackle rising rates, to tackle cash flow, and to think of wealth creation. So for context, that property was rented for $340 or $350 prior renovations. I spent $28,000 just over. And the outcome of that 28K was to replace carpets, paint internally, new shower rows, shower taps, and new vanity bench top with sink on top, new kitchen bench top, dishwasher, oven, stovetop, pergola, and window furnishings. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're all wondering, hey, Arjun, like you sounds like you got 1970s prices. <laughs> it is because I'm in this industry and it is because I've my team and I have purchased over 350 properties. So as a result, network and relationships help. And what that's, uh, I would say in the common pricing world, like just average investor going out to other trades that maybe be a 40K right now, but for 28K, um, that's what it is. Let's even say it's 40K just for the sake of this example, Mm -hmm. but it was 28K exactly. Uh, You can go and see before and after photos. REA um, will help see that. And you can kind of just click through before and after 
And yeah, check it out. The outcome here was that the rent moved from 340, 350 to 475. That's $125 per week. Now, $125 per week, if you look at that on an annual basis, and then if you take away property management on that money, that's just over $6,000 in increases of cash flow. Now, I first purchased that property for $292,000. I took a 90% loan, and that loan was $260K. I then increased that loan to take out equity. So I think I took out about 40K, of which I used that 28 for the renovations. So my loan owing is about 302,000 then. So 302,000, if I increase those interest rates by the 0.1, I think 0.11 or 12, that's roughly happened now, or 1.11 or 1.2, heck, I'll even move it up to 2% to be conservative for factoring in maybe the next month or two's rate rises. That's $6,000 of increased interest. Mm -hmm. So you can see that $28,000 in spend or 40 k in equity loan mm -hmm. has increased my rent by $6,000 to then, and that's net rent after property management, by the way. Oh, wow. Very good. To then also balance the $6,000 in interest rate, interest rate rises of 2% higher, yeah. which is not up to that 2% higher which yet. We're not there yet. Because yeah. it was 0.1 to 1.35. So, yeah. So just over 1% higher. So the rates could go up 0.5 for the next two months and it would be neutralized. Mm -hmm. And this is not including any additional depreciation from the renovations or write-off. And this is not including any capital growth that's happened as a result of renovating the property to make it more appealing. Because I'm sure a house that rented for 340 mm -hmm. is valued differently to a house that rents at 475. Yeah, definitely. So I guess on that note of equity, as people who reach out to Lee or speak to the team at Hills Finance, consider refinancing, accessing equity, and just whacking it into your offset account, take a moment to reflect on your portfolio and just go, are there any quick wins that I can do? Ceiling fan light combos, split systems, refreshing carpets, full paints. And how much is that ROI positive outcome? Is it a scenario like mine where the rents go up $125 after a 28K exercise and in retail world call it 40K? Or even if it goes up $100, not quite $125, $50. Because $50 on 40K spend, if you were to buy a $50 per week rental on a 40K property, that's not, you know, too bad either, right? No. On that increase, that's pretty good. So I think uh, just on that note, when you are refinancing and you are looking at equity, there is going to be a lot of people with a lot of equity if you've owned a property for two years or more, because you've just gone through 40% plus in asset value rises because, you know, hopefully it's not an apartment, it's in a house, um, but 40% plus in asset yeah. rises as per ABS. And that ties in like, side note or off the back of what you're saying with the last podcast we spoke about the tight rental vacancies if you're coming off and change you know it's you're coming up to renewal of lease for example you're considering hey I've had this increase in equity it's time to review my loan also what can we do to improve that property right to bring in a higher rental return yeah it's that's a, the game so it's a massive overall strategy 
So Lee, then that's a big part of that finance piece when it comes to increasing finance take up, increasing rates, all the lender policy stuff you've mentioned, which mm-hmm. is just to be really mindful, take care with as the rates increase, your pre-approval may be adjusted or things change. Yeah. We also talked about where we anticipate the cash rate going to. How about we move into the world of policy now yeah. um, off the back of finance? So finance was that first update for what we're seeing and it's happening out there. But on the policy front, there's been some um, big changes. What's happening on the land tax front, Lee? Yeah, so a big one for investors is the announcement that Queensland are launching a new land tax policy for the 23-24 tax year. And that's where they will take into account properties you hold in Australia aggregately for this land tax calculation, so long as you hold one of those properties that are within the Queensland state. So, yeah, I mean, did you want to go through the actual calculation of how that that land tax is is calculated? Well, look, I mean, I think there's a really good example on the Queensland, um, if you just Google Queensland land tax and just jump onto the you know the Queensland state's relevant websites there. They actually have an example. Mm-hmm. And essentially, someone would have gone from paying 1.6 to like roughly 7 to 8K or um, 2 or 3K roughly, I think it was. So it's adding thousands. Long story short, yeah. for the typical investor, it's adding thousands. And for yeah. a sophisticated investor, it's adding tens of thousands of dollars per year. I think I mapped out our portfolio mm-hmm. and we go today from paying no land tax in Queensland to paying over $20,000 Yeah, in that. So That's massive. So I, I guess like a, a lot of, I guess, people who are investors that hold property within Queensland, they're thinking, oh man, what all this increased cost for my investment, should I sell? You know, what do I do with my property? I mean, I guess like, I think it's a really important thing to highlight, Arjun. So what, what would your suggestions be for property investors that hold property in Queensland with this change coming up, what do you suggest? Yeah, so let's actually do the activity as if it's us by the fireplace or <laughs> in the kitchen, come home from a big day, we're by the dining table, popped open a wine, go, hey, okay. And by the way, for everyone wondering, we don't just after every big day have a wine. We're just trying to relate here, right? Uh, for those who might love their wines. So um, we sit down and we're going, okay, let's have a chat. And as we're chatting through this, this is what I think through. Firstly, The common thing we would look at when we see a new 20K payment, us two would sit there and probably go, well, should we just get rid of our Queensland properties? Yeah, well, I think when we first brought this up, it's like, shit, should we just, do we re-restructure our portfolio to get rid of those and put it elsewhere? Well, see, that was the first thought, right? But then I thought of these three scenarios, which we'll go through now. Number one, what if it gets opposed prior and removed before June next year? Yeah. Do I really want to make a knee-jerk reaction when I bought into markets in Queensland, not for growth of just now, but growth for later. And it's funny, right? Like a lot of investors that we come across that are Sydney-based, if they're investing outside of Sydney, it's so funny that they always bring up Queensland as a first option. So yeah, I wonder how that changes now, right? So it's like, firstly, that indicates a lot of Sydney investors first go to Queensland to invest in potentially, like from a mental point of view. So they're, you know... And then, yeah, it's just interesting. So I think it's definitely a first question that comes to people's yeah. mind. So I think that's the first one. What if it gets opposed prior and removed? The second one is what happens if 
it gets in there, it happens, and now you're in 2023. Then you move into 2024, and it gets opposed and removed in the first year or in the subsequent elections. Okay, mm. again, did we, Lee and I, just make a knee-jerk move for property in our portfolio and just sold it for no reason? And then I go to number three. What happens if it doesn't get opposed, doesn't get removed? It's now year three. You've been stung by your first bill. Queensland laughs at you. Elections go by. Queensland is not moving on it. Any change comes up, they're not moving on it. They want to hammer the investor, and now it's cemented. Well, I think every other state follows. And if it's cemented and the cash grab works and they can get away with the cash grab, then every other state comes and goes, we'll try this cash grab too. We, we need to make up on this huge spending. Let's yeah, do it. It's going to stop other states doing it, right? So then comes back to square one. Why the hell did I make a knee-jerk reaction and yeah. sell my portfolio? Yeah. So what are we doing? We're not going to make knee-jerk reactions. That's We're right. going to invest for the locations we want to invest in. We're going to invest to build a portfolio that we want to hold. Mm-hmm. And that portfolio will have long-term compounding growth. Mm-hmm. And over time, Yes, it will carry more cost to hold a portfolio of that size. But guess what, people? The portfolio you're building today is not the portfolio size of tomorrow. Because the truth is, consolidation creates passive income. And consolidation comes from selling assets to clear debt or just having a high income and high savings rate and clearing your debt. Clearing the debt down. Because, see, the debt is your enemy in later years when it comes to the actual passive income creation, debt is your best friend to start to acquire the assets. Mm -hmm. And so it means that we might not be sitting on this frequency and high quantity of property in later years in life because we might have that lower frequency and quantity of property to just generate the same net outcome. So Mm -hmm. I think the main thing is the wealth creation, then to have greater compounding is our priority for the next 10 years. And the 10 years following, we look at what's the consolidation effect here required to be optimized for tax and draw down a passive income. So I think that's where when I hear this rule, it is horrible. I'm not a fan of it. It's just silly because there are going to be the people that they're hoping to do good by are actually going to be impacted greater. And that's not the investors I'm talking about. I'm talking about renters. It's mm-hmm. proven from our last podcast that renters were absolutely stung by years of an intervention, policy changing, investor appetite shifting, and investor finance ultimately dropping. Over a longer term, there's a proven trend that governments don't want to be landlords. They're not putting out the housing that's required from a social perspective to allow for more rentals to be in the marketplace. So as a result, the investors are the one funding it. So how dare you come in and keep stinging all the investors? Mm. So what that now means is if you want to take a look across the ditch, look over to New Zealand and see what constant pinging of the investor, making life difficult for lending to the investor, policies for holding an investment property looks like, you're going to see rents fly up just as if they ha- as they have now. Rents will have a boom, crisis, whatever you want to call it, 2.0 over the next few years in Queensland because of policies and silly policy making like this. So yeah. I'm quite upset by it, but at the same time, life goes on for investors. We're very fortunate to be doing what we do in building the portfolio that we have. 
But at the same time, I'm going to be upset for all the renters who are going to be doing it tough. So expect rents to rise. Investors, you will be okay. Your capital growth will continue on with the fundamentals of housing that exist in Australia and your rents will skyrocket. Now, whether that covers all your land tax bills, some of it or not, there's a lag attached to this and it will take time. And we'll just need to see and sit back. For now, for us and our clients, we're operating, buying and scaling property portfolios to do with the right locations and the tax policies and things are just a cost of doing business. Yeah. Golden nugget though, for I guess first-time investors or investors that have not invested in Queensland, you, you're obviously going to continue to invest outside of that. No, 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 because I think the good question, Lee, it's really important for the people considering Queensland. I think it doesn't change a thing. Okay. And the reason why is I think of those three scenarios. What if it gets removed? Why did you make a decision and kill a state because of that? Mm -hmm. What if it gets removed? Scenario two, later on, why did you make a decision and kill off a state because of that? Right. Number three, what if everyone jumps on the train and does everything? Mm. It does the same thing in every state. Why did you choose a state or not choose a state because of that? So all three scenarios point to it that you should just go back to doing what you always do with fundamentals, which is choose the best location. And the second fundamental is not tax perspective. It's actually location and diversity with your asset choices. And it's actually just diversity across locations for the sake of different drivers. You know, the drivers of Wagga might be different to the drivers of Toowoomba and Bundaberg. So I think that's the purpose of investing and that's the foundations of successful investing and taxes and rents and things. The input and output will work itself out. So that's kind of my advice there. Cool. Or my thoughts. All right. So the next big policy change that has been announced recently was that New South Wales has introduced to offer first home buyers the option of paying stamp duty or instead an annual land tax option starting from mid-January next year. Yeah, so this is big, very, very big news. Now, people can sit on the calculators and break down all the numbers they want. Oh, no, in 12 years, it's now worse off. Or, oh, no, in six years, it's better or worse off. Just remember, any policy, the government wins long term. We need to understand that. But it's not about comparing that, right? Because the whole point of policy input is for the government to win. And hopefully, we win later as a result of a strong government example, all the stimulus that printed off and all the support and all the the luxuries that we were able to have the support of during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But let's put that to the side and let's just focus on the outcome that the government will win. So let's not get caught up on the stamp duty land tax, which one's better by which time, but look at this year, it's an ROI negative and this year it's an ROI positive. The main shift that this will cause is a shift in the amount of money you need to get into the housing market. This is the big part. Imagine all the years of savings that are eroded as a result of not having to put that much money away. Like all these years of savings that are removed, you're able to get into it much faster. So I see two things happening. If you're in the middle of a rental crisis and a rental crisis is seeing your rents go up and up and up, It's proven as we analyze data that renters look at that rental crisis, see their budgets, and just wonder how can I close the gap to one day owning that property or owning a property in the area where they're pretty much paying their landlord's mortgage. And so as a result, this will allow a barrier to be broken for many renters who want to get on the property buying market. 
And this will be great news for first-home buyers for access to the power of real estate, wealth creation, and permanent shelter. So what I think that does, though, is that the outcome of this is we will see a big push in affordable real estate, or actually many brackets of real estate, because this is a government cost matter. This isn't just for first-home buyers, right? Honestly, actually, sorry, it's for first-home buyers, but it's not for this very, very tight lower-end bracket. The brackets are will come up as more info comes up. But I think the main thing here is that first-term buyers will have that support and lots of renters will transition to buyers. And as a result, that will push property prices up. So short-term, it opens up a big price wave of demand. Short to medium-term, it opens up many transitioning opportunities for renters to home buyers. But like anything new, it then finds a space of equilibrium, meaning either A, prices have risen enough that whatever you saved in years of saving of stamp duty, it comes back into the price. So example. Yeah, so you, you're now going to put that towards a higher purchase price. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So if you had a 400K. The property market keeps it, Totally, right? Yeah. If you had a 400K property and you go, well, I now only have to save 40K for this. Yeah. Not 60 for stamp duty and, and that. One day that property's demand is going to be pushed up by many 40K seekers, mm. the 40K you know, cash seekers who are putting that in to 600K. Mm. And now that 400 becomes 600. So for that 600 that you you know, used to need 60K for when it was 400K, you now need that same 60K for it because it's now priced at 600K due to demand pushing it up. It's kind of like the whole train station, right? Oh, wow, train stations here. I really want to go into that suburb. Prices get set accordingly to what it offers. The train station becomes a forever amenity now, and now the prices are in line with that forever. Mm-hmm. Same with um, you know, schools. Great school here. Really love it. Okay, demand is there, but now the, the demand and the pricing of that properties in that school zone are always infinitely more expensive than the other, not necessarily growing better, but they've been factored in. So yeah. I do think there'll be a moment of factoring it in, then everyone goes back to paying what they were paying. And yeah. it's, it was great for votes. So that land tax offer is available only for first home buyers, buying homes within a 1.5 million purchase price, which makes sense because like average house price is around 1.5 now. Anyway, so that makes complete sense. Exactly, right? So I think the main thing here is that everyone's so used to saying the affordable is four, five, six hundred K. But with the way median prices have moved in major cities like Sydney, which make up a lot of transaction of New South Wales, even the one mil to 1.4 is somewhat affordable to many Sydney siders. Yep, exactly. The next thing here is property. So so far, we've gone through finance, some keynotes mm-hmm. there, yep. uh, policy, and the third part is property. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing is obviously what's on the property front, Arjun. So obviously a lot of things are happening in the property space and changes, and, and you wanted to go through some key things to be mindful of going forward, one of them being cash flow lag in property. So what does that mean, and what do you want to mention about that? Yeah, so as part of our six monthly, you know, review of what are the three core things people should be thinking about for the the next six months ahead. The first one is cash flow lag in property. Why is that important? Right now, interest rates are moving at a faster rate the other direction, and so this means that the rental yields that people feel are needed to get the job done. There's two ways you can look at it. You can expect either a just less cash flow or a slight loss, or b you can look at it and go well, 
I want to target higher yields. And this is where people will run into some mistakes and they'll cut out many markets to look at for property investing. Essentially, if they start looking at markets and go, well, I just only want to look at the yields of 5% plus now, 5.5 plus now to hit a certain number, then they're missing out the concept of cash flow lag. So what happens in property investing, especially during now with the rental markets extremely tight, yes, you might not have the strongest of cash flow position with changing interest rates, but we are going to see a big lag and this catch up. When you make a purchase price today, it's locked in. Interest rates can change, repayments can change, but so can rents. So instead of dialing up the rental yield you need, I say be patient in this market because rents have been exploding. And by the looks of the vacancy rate conditions, they're continuing to explode ahead. So that's the first one, Lee. Okay, great. And so is there anything, I guess, what what would be the next important thing that you would be focusing on from a property space for the clients? Well, actually, me and you were talking about this offline, and it was actually a lot about the type of you know, clients we're both seeing. And by type, I mean the requests that are coming in. Mm-hmm. So you've noticed, I think on the finance front, many people who could be approved for 800K or a million, yep. but they're not quite taking that up. What, yeah. what are you seeing there? Well, they're not going for the full, I guess, borrowing capacity that they have available. Okay. And, you know, that's a big key part, right? Because in the past we've seen investing go, hey, if I can get approved for 800, I kind of want to go up to 800. So what are they doing now? I guess, what are you Probably noticing? Probably leaning front? more to like a 600K. If, if, if their budget's 800K, they're leaning more to 600, keeping a bit of a buffer there if rates continue to increase, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, they're just focusing on more affordable type budgets. Exactly, right? And that's what I'm seeing as well in the investigate business, which is people who might be, say, looking at a uh, 800K borrowing power, 900K borrowing power saying, hey, I'd like to purchase between four and 600. So this is where we do see in times of uncertainty, people shift to more affordable options to still progress ahead, but also to get those cash flow components a little bit tighter. So if you are going to see an area where the demand still remains a little bit stronger, it is in that affordable price point, especially in history as well. When there are changes of demands, the swings occur more on that top end of price, the volatility. So um, that's kind of the second point to expect over the six months ahead. Awesome. What would be your three, number three important property tip or focus that you'd be mentioning? This is the most important one. And this is what we call the power of a buying window. And what we're seeing in Australia right now is a shift in consumer sentiment. Consumer sentiment is almost as low. And if it keeps trending up or down, actually, it'll be lower than pandemic levels, which is crazy. Everyone's spending money. Everyone's out and about. Everyone's traveling again. You can go see a mate. You can hug a mate. But yet consumer sentiment levels are at pandemic levels which just goes to show the level of uncertainty in people's minds Mm. when it comes to what we're seeing right now. So um, this is a clear sign that a lot of buyers that are dropping off are either A, catching up on lost times, traveling around, which is probably why the airports are also so packed, but B, they're sitting back because they're unsure. And so when people are unsure, the buying window comes up. And this is where if fundamentals of markets that you're analyzing are healthy and strong, and the only difference is people just aren't feeling confident, you may see yourself over these next three to six months, and even today, hence why you and I just bought two properties for ourselves, mm, yeah. um, a unit block in Bundaberg, it was a triplex there, and then a house in Annandale 
in Townsville. So this clearly shows that the buying windows are wide open for buyers, savvy and astute property buyers to go in there and realize that fundamentals are still strong in many areas. The housing conditions are still healthy. It's just the fact that you've got a cloud over that market in sentiment, which allows you to pick up properties without insane levels of competition. And these are even in markets that are rising. They might have 40 people at an open home and it looks crazy, but instead of having 15 offers like there were earlier this year, they probably have four to five, which means you can still get in into rising markets with that slightly lower competition. So these are my top three tips for the next six months. A, look at cash flow lag because it will catch up. B, affordability, both in Lee's business and my business is seeing clients up towards that, you know, more sweet spot. Yeah, and buffers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Exactly, just smart financial decisions. Mm-hmm. And lastly, yeah. the buying window. Consumer sentiment's low. Historically, these are the best moments to pick up assets. Amazing. Well, there you go in a nutshell in terms of property tips, finance updates and everything. Anything else we wanted to cover off today? No, well, if you if you like this um, episode uh, in terms of deep diving into finance, policy, and property, a little bit different to just that core one subject of a property market we go into, well, don't hesitate to like, subscribe. Well, it's not YouTube. Can they really like it? Maybe they can. It's the podcast, but at least subscribe to us and uh, you know continue to drop Lee and I messages. Reach out to us if you need any help with your portfolio individually, and um, wish you all the best for investing ahead. Thanks, guys. Bye. Game over.